Hi, welcome to the 24th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we talk about murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where we featured the murder of Bruce Dodson by his wife who tried to frame her ex-husband for the crime. Fair warning, our show can be extremely horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also be forewarned, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but sometimes we will make jokes and we will laugh during our podcast. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform, and please give us a five-star rating. While you are there, leave a comment telling us which murder intrigues you. And if you like our show, please consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash pod. We appreciate our Patreon supporters more than we can express with words. Thank you all so much. Hey, Mercedes, how are ya? Oh, I'm doing okay, Cindy. Um, Self-quarantining and, you know, had a little bit of anxiety yesterday, but worked through it and, um, yeah, went to the grocery store today. Ooh, how was that? Well, actually, I'm surprised. I actually found chicken. They were um, stocking the meat. There's still, you know, a lot of empty shelves and whatnot. But Is there any ground beef? There was ground beef. They had ground beef. They had oh. chicken breast, which I have not been able to find at all. I, you know what? I did not even go down the toilet paper aisle. <laughs> well, my husband has enough old t-shirts that I've been dying to get rid of in the event that that happens. You know what else I've heard someone use is, you know, those socks that only have one match. <laughs> you know, one, wipe your ass yeah. and put it in the trash. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do or, you know, I don't know, get in the shower. Well, I hope everybody out there is, you know, doing okay and self-quarantining and self-isolation or whatever we're calling it. Yes, just Social being distancing. smart. So, yes. So, anyway, um, Cindy, how you doing? Uh, I know I gave you homework. Did you have time to get that done? Yes, I did get some homework done. You asked me if when you buy, if you, when you buy a firearm, do they fire it, keep track of the bullets for ballistic purposes? Right. Now... I inquired to my U.S. Marshal friend about concealed weapons also on if they like when you get your concealed weapon license, if they do that. And the answer is no. It's about the user for the concealed weapons. It's not really about the gun now, because depending on what you're going to the class for, if you are like prior military, for instance, my husband doesn't he doesn't have to take the course. He can just sign the piece of paper, go and pay the whatever the dollar amount is. So not everybody has to actually go through the full-blown course. Um, So it's about the person, not the weapon there. However, when you buy a weapon, let's say you walk into a gun store and you get approved, yada, 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 you buy the gun, they don't fire it right then. They don't make you fire it. They don't take it anywhere. Now, the manufacturer may have done that already, but when that doesn't help law enforcement track a weapon. So So there's no database on a gun before you buy it. On ballistics. Okay. Right. So they'll say, okay, well, you, Mr. So-and-so, own this Glock 40. With this serial number, but they right. don't know what the bullet would look like ballistic-wise. Right. I mean, yes. Okay. Well, thank you. I mean, they, yes. that, that They won't be able to link it to Mr. So-and-so 
until after, unless it's been used in a crime and they have the ballistics report and right. that sort of thing. Okay. If that's if I'm making sense. Yes, you are. Okay. Yes, you are. I mean, high possibility that I'm not. So thank you. Well, I understood <laughs> it quite well. So hopefully everyone else did, you know. All right, so what you got for us? Well, this week, um, we are traveling to New Mexico, Hobbs, New Mexico. And it's 2002, January 16th, 2002. There's a young mother named Olivia, no, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Garcia, who's working at a graveyard shift at an Alsip's convenience store. It's her second night on the job. She's only been there. It's her second night on the job. She's working alone. Graveyard shift. That's what, like uh, 11 to 7 or something like that? That's frightening. And she, did you say she was by herself? She was. She was working alone on her second night graveyard yeah, I don't shift. I think so. She seems like she should still be in training at that point. Right? Don't you think? <laughs> I mean, even, I mean, the point is sail, Sink or swim, what to right? do. Yeah, seems right. like there should be a little bit more training, more training than, right. you know, hey, here are the keys. Have fun. Don't get shot. Now, the 26-year-old mother of three was working to support herself and her three young children. She was taking college classes at New Mexico Junior College, according to all her friends, former employees, uh, employers, sorry. She was reliable, responsible. She had hopes and dreams. She wanted to graduate from college, provide for her children. Wow. She sounds very driven and, you know, doing what she's got to do. Right. Responsible. Good grief. Yeah. I mean, both of us have been there, right? And yeah. yeah. It's it's hard. And, you know, my first child, I was going through college almost his entire childhood. Me too. It explains a lot. <laughs> Maybe. Hmm. Now that I think about it. <laughs> All right. So sometime before 2.30 a.m. on her second night at work, she disappeared from her workplace. For no known reason. So a customer came into the store around 2.30 and found it empty, and he ended up calling police. Friends and family all agree that she would not have disappeared on her own accord. I mean, she wasn't the one to go, F this, I'm not doing this job. Right. I mean, did she didn't encounter, like, a creepy person and was like, nope, mm -mm. Well, there were no security cameras um, at the store, no alarm button that she could have pushed if she was in trouble. There was no one there working with her. She was alone with no backup. So was this like a little mom and pop store? And Alsip's, I, I kind of looked it up. It's an inner, it's an enterprise and the, it's kind of like a 7-Eleven in that area. They're all over the place. Well, that sounds incredibly irresponsible of an enterprise to not have security cameras, to not have an alarm button, to not have any kind of safeguard to protect their employees. And this was not the first rodeo of one of their employees being hurt. It actually dates back because, as we're going to see later, um, Elizabeth Garcia's family ends up suing this um, Alsip's Enterprise. Good for them. And they actually track all the people that went missing. And I don't go through that in this podcast just be for time purposes, but there were probably at least eight, eight or nine people who had been robbed, killed, hurt on the job, and they had not done anything to protect them. Holy crap. I hope they're not in business anymore. That, I believe they are, because I think the suit was just filed, just settled like in 2003 or something, or 2013. I'm going to go into that a little bit at, towards oh. the end. But yeah, it's definitely heartbreaking. And hopefully their business practices have been updated. And, and yes, and we're going to go into that because that was part of the arrangement that they made with his family. Anyway, she goes missing. And then the next afternoon, 
A local resident discovers her body in a vacant field near a dirt road. She had been brutally murdered. She was fully clothed when she was found, and it was determined that she was also fully clothed when she was stabbed. All 56 times. Holy shit. That's like anger and passion. I mean, yes. you usually don't. 56 times. I mean, that's. Wow. Yeah, there's no thought. You're just stabbing, right? Right. But what kind of hatred or emotion do you have for a person to stab them 56 times? That's not like an easy feat. It's not. I mean, that's. Right. I mean, last week or a couple of days ago, I had to lift. A bunch of gallons of milk. <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the chicken that I did find last week actually had bones in it. So I'm trying to debone it. Yeah, that's And easy. I can't even hardly do that, uh-huh. you know. Later um, at the killer's trial, testimony and photographs document that Garcia's killer stabbed her 56 times, slit her throat. She was stabbed in her chest, her abdomen, her back and hip. She also had other injuries, defensive wounds on her hands and arms. And her killer stabbed her with such force that it broke some of her bones. Holy crap. Wow, that's awful. At the murder scene, they found, well, not at the murder scene because they're not sure where she was murdered, but where they found her body. There were tire tracks and footprints at the scene. Blood and scrapes on the ground indicated that she had been dragged from the passenger side of a car. Several experts testified about the significance of physical evidence found at her murder scene. Police followed several leads and interviewed several possible suspects, including a man named Stephen DeMoss. At the time, DeMoss was 23 years old, and it was rumored that he had a grudge against Garcia because his dad, who had met her at AutoZone, where she previously worked for two and a half years, really liked her. So he was like, somebody said, well, does, does she have any known enemies? This guy's name came up, DeMoss, Stephen DeMoss. So... He was mad at her because his dad took an interest in her. Is that what I'm under? Is that yes? And I and it was never fully clear to me whether it was a a a romantic interest or just friends. I kind of got the impression that he just really liked her as a as a person, but I don't know if it was anything more like romantic. Okay, so the dad worked at AutoZone with her. Or I don't know if he actually worked there, if he just went there a lot. I don't know. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. That's where they met. That's just some that's just what um, you know, when they said, Well does anyone have a grudge against this woman, they came up with this guy's name. Okay. Wow. Now he Mr. DeMoss, Stephen DeMoss was born November fifteenth, nineteen seventy nine in Hobbs, New Mexico, where he grew up. He and his brother owned Keynote Express, where he was a manager and computer technician. According to friends and family, he loved working on computers and raising his son. No evidence, no physical evidence connected DeMoss to Garcia's murder, so police followed other leads unsuccessfully. Well, I mean, I guess it's kind of good that they didn't, like, narrow in on him and try to make the evidence fit right. the, the suspect. Right. So, I mean. Yeah. True. Until necessarily needed. Sixteen months later, this is still a cold case, but they find um, on May 13, 2003, 35-year-old Patty Simon had just disappeared from her uh, her job, Bell's Department Store. She worked, um, she went on a break, and she never came back. She was not heard from again. Nobody really uh, thought anything of this because, you know, maybe she just didn't like the job and quit. So she kind of had that personality a little bit. She was a mother of four kids, um, but she also disappeared from her workplace. Okay, so that so no one like 
thought, well, you know, this person went missing. This is, they kind of felt like it met her, it, what am I trying to say? They it did lined not, up with her personality. Yes. They did not connect the two cases. And I don't want to say anything bad about this woman, Patty Simon, because I really didn't find anything bad about her. Right. The suspect later does say something about, you know, we went to go buy meth together. So I don't know if she had a drug problem or not. Not that that means that she deserves any of this at all. No, not at all. Right. And which is kind of like, I've always, especially when I was like a single parent, uh, you know, if I didn't show up for my job, would someone come looking for me? And that always kind of was in the back of my mind. Right. You know? Yeah. How many days would it be before, you know, would anyone think, especially when I lived like away, when I was off at college and I did have a young daughter, but that doesn't mean that any, you know, would they come looking for her? Would they? Right. I mean, or I even, know, you know, just like working, bartending all those years that I did, you know, I would always ask someone, please walk me to my car. Mm-hmm. And I'd always try to park next to uh, uh, like a parking lot light just because That's I've smart. always been super paranoid. I'd always hold my keys or have mace or something in my hand. Yeah. But because that is kind of like, especially when you work at a restaurant, per se, let's say, how many people just don't show up for right. their jobs and or don't or, or leave and not go on a break and not come no, back? Exactly. Yeah. We used to own a, a restaurant and I mean, we would go through, I think we had like 430 employees one, one year. Holy so, crap. Yeah. Gosh. And, you know, when you're talking about a restaurant that pays like minimum wage and, and, and whatnot, you're not talking about the top of the barrel there. You're right. You, you know, yeah, you don't, it's a transient get, employee base. Yeah, you don't so, get stellar yeah. employees all right. the time. I mean, you do get them. I know that um, I had a job at a place in the past and I, uh, I put in for my leave, you know, a, a leave day because I was sick the night before and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to request this day off, you know, just the kind of job that I had. I was able to do that. Well, apparently I asked for a day that I wasn't scheduled, but it approved it. And so I didn't go to work the next day. Well, my boss went and like found like found out where I was. Oh, he, that's good. Because the next thing I know, I mean, I turned my phone off, went to sleep. They were seeking out people. They went to their offices that they're like, hey, do you know where this person is? You're not in trouble. Just let me you know. Do you know where this person is? Yeah. And um, my neighbor came over. And was banging on my door and was like, hey, man, so-and-so is trying to get a hold of you. Because they talked to someone who then said, well, this is where her, this is her husband's number. This is where he works. So then he couldn't get a hold of me. So he called the neighbor who came over. And I was like, well, they, at least I knew that they wanted to make sure I wasn't dead in a ditch. Right. So because I had actually brought someone to work that day, dropped them off and went back home. And that person was like, no. Then they were freaking out. Like, did, she was sick. She asked for this day off. She got approved. And then, so that's how, I mean, I kind of was like. At least you have friends that will check up on you because this lady didn't. As a matter of fact, no one reported her missing or anything from, from the evidence that I found. But the next day, May 14th, oil workers found Patty Simon dead in a caliche pit on the outskirts of Hobbs. Uh, Caliche or caliche is a Spanish word. It's a gravel, sand, and desert debris that's cemented by a porous calcium carbonate. That really occurs naturally throughout the Southwest, and it's also used quite a lot in making road-based materials. So she was found in a caliche pit. Now, like Elizabeth Garcia 16 months prior, Patty Simon, too, had been brutally murdered. Unlike Garcia, though, Simon was found nude from her bra lying down. Her shirt, she was still wearing her shirt, but her shirt was pulled up over her head. Her legs were spread and her underwear was around her ankles. 
Her injuries were consistent with, but not necessarily conclusive of a sexual penetration. However, her genitalia had been mutilated. They did not find semen at the scene, but later they did find some in her underwear. Now, when you say mutilated, like torn up, like someone... Yeah, I don't know exactly. They didn't go into detail on that. But, um, you know, they could have been just trying to hide evidence of of semen or who knows. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. At trial, the state introduced testimony and photographs that documented um, that she suffered severe blunt force trauma to her head and neck. She had a broken nose. She had radiating skull fractures. One of her eyes was ruptured, and there were numerous lacerations, bruises, and other injuries to her arms, hands, and the rest of her body consistent with defensive wounds. So she fought back is what they're God. saying. When you say your eye is ruptured, does that mean like the blood vessels are ruptured? You know, where it's like... Yeah, I'm thinking that, and then I'm also thinking like maybe she was just beaten so hard in her eye socket. Oh, like, my God. I don't know. Oh, my God. That's awful. I, Ugh. It, it's horrific. She had a large gaping incised wound or slash across the upper part of her throat. And there were also obvious injuries to her legs and genitalia. Now, the medical examiner said that she either the cut to her throat or the blunt force injuries caused her death. The police immediately started investigating. Well, I this. hope so. Right. At the scene was her car. There was a lot of blood in and around it, including in the trunk. There was a cigarette butt found sitting in the opening to the gas tank, like someone had tried to set the car on fire. So, yeah, they whoever did this put a cigarette in in the gas tank, I guess, thinking it would explode. Yeah, that's not how gas tanks work. <laughs> well, obviously not. God. Um, they watched too yeah. many movies. Police collected those cigarette butts found on the ground and in the area, and there was only one type of footprint found near her body. Now, while investigators are logging this evidence in at Simon's crime, they got a call at headquarters from a man who told a very strange story. The man called and said, look, I just found this scratched up bloody man um, on the side of the road. Not very, and the police realized they found this guy not too far from where Patty Simon's body was. Uh-oh. The caller said that his co-worker, a delivery guy, found a shirtless man lying on the side of the road, and he pulled over to assist. Oh, hell no. Yeah. Well, the guy was alive, and he asked for a ride. Now, you know what? You see somebody bloody on the side I mean, of the yeah, road that needs stop. help. I think nowadays, I would definitely call 911. Back then, 2002, I'm trying to think, did I even have a cell phone? I might have had a cell phone, but it I was, did. like, super, super expensive to make calls on it and whatnot. So, yeah. it's not like something... I don't even think that I had a real cell phone where... I used, I still had a landline at that time. Oh, I had a landline, but I definitely had a phone in 2002 because I worked for a cell phone company at that point. Yeah. Well, so I had one. I mean. My husband had one. He needed one for work. And I think I had one. It was like a track phone or something where the minutes were outrageous. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, remember you could call after 9. Right, right. Like Friday yeah. night at 9 p.m. And, and texting. All you had to text like you had to hit the two button like oh, three yeah. times to get to a seat. I could never do that. I, I was uh, so excited the first time I got one with a keypad. I'm right. like, I need full sentences with punctuation. <laughs> right, I'm like, right. yeah. Anyway, this drive, the delivery driver um, pulled over to assist the guy. The guy was alive. He was bloody. He was scratched up. And he asked for a ride. The delivery's guy, the delivery guy's like, you know, I have to finish these deliveries, but my coworker can um, give you a ride. So he got in the car with the coworker, who from now on I'm just going to refer to as the caller. Okay. So the caller offered him a ride, and he, the guy's like, I need to go home. Just take me home. 
along the way, the man is explaining that that night, the night before, he was at a bowling alley talking to this girl named Patty, and a few drunk guys were trying to rough her up. So he jumped in, you know, knight in shiny armor. And he says the next thing that he remembered was waking up on the side of the road. He had a knot on his head. He was scratched and he seemed shaken. The caller said, dude, do you want me to take you to the hospital? But the guy refused. After dropping the strange shirtless guy off at his apartment, the caller immediately contacted the police. He, he just thought, there's something strange. This dude's bloody. And he called the police and said, this is where I dropped the guy off. The police hurried to the shirtless guy's apartment. And when they got there, he still hadn't changed his clothes or bathed. What a, well, no one says all criminals are smart, but what a freaking moron. Well, and it happened pretty quickly. Like, it, the guy dropped him off and was on the phone yeah. immediately this with police. This, this is very suspicious, and you need to check this guy out. Like, I don't buy his story at all. Well, and as as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about the dates, this is not very far removed from the D.C. sniper. So. Oh, so people are on the. Well, I think they're just more yeah. aware of craziness happening in our world. Right. Because you have, you have September 11th. I think because before that, it felt like that we were just kind of like had blinders on. Bad stuff doesn't happen. Now we have the 24-hour news cycle or we're getting there because we're not quite the 24-hour news cycle. But I remember DC Sniper was, that was 2002. Yeah. And right? It was scary. And I remember, I mean, because that was like, there was quite a few months. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, they, the news could have picked up that they found this woman in the Kalichi pit. So maybe he's connecting that also true the police quickly drive there and they knock on the man's door and they determine that the man is paul lovett now lovett was still shirtless and had scratches on his arms and shoulders he did agree to go to headquarters for an interview with the police there they obtained a search warrant and they took samples from lovett including blood hair and a penile swab ow <laughs> now i don't know if they actually go into it or they just like do the tip like a of gonorrhea it. test? I, I've ooh, never had ooh, that. <laughs> What are you talking about? Oh, what do they call it? Punching something. Oh God, don't! <laughs> you just made me like clench down there. Oh my gosh! So my kid had to do that Freedom 180. I don't know if you know what that is. Yes. Okay. Well, they talk about it in depth and how they used to do it during, like in the Civil War times, uh-huh. and it was like a metal needle with spikes on it oh ouch (laughs) (laughs) all right well initially the police only investigated lovett in relation to the simon murder they did not suspect that he could also be related to the garcia murder among others they had investigated stephen demoss and ooh, big surprise they realized that lovett's brother-in-law is stephen demoss Shut up. Right. So the guy that they had initially Uh. thought was responsible for the Garcia murder is related through marriage to, or was related. He's not married to the sister at this time anymore. But at the time that Garcia was killed, Lovett was Stephen DeMoss's brother-in-law. Okay. So is this like a small town where everyone's related? It is a very small town, by the way. Yes. Okay. So, I mean... As small towns go, what's the likelihood that they are working together or was this just a coincidence? Are we going to find that out? We, I don't know that we ever find it out, but to me, it's kind of a crazy coincidence that the one guy that they think, the one, they actually had four suspects as we'll find out. 
but the one that they had the strongest suspicion of is related to this man who you know was on the side of the road and claimed to have meet met this lady at a bowling alley yeah that's just too close i don't know that's very suspicious is it yes they end up interviewing paul lovett three times three different occasions the first interview took place after the delivery man found lovett on the side of the road it's that day they began, it's the same day that they found Simon's murder and began to investigate it. In that interview, he changed his story. Lovett changed his story from what he told the caller who gave him a ride. So now it's a different story. Lovett told police that he and Patty Simon had met at her workplace the day before so that he could buy meth. While they met in her car, a man who Lovett didn't recognize but who Patty knew approached. The man threatened Patty with a knife and demanded her drugs. Lovett said he tried to hit the man, but that the man slashed his shirt, causing the scratch marks on his torso. Lovett said the man made Patty drive her car out of town onto a gravel road. There, the man hit Patty with something, causing her to bleed from the back of her head. Then the man forced Lovett to drive with Patty in the passenger seat. At some point, the man hit Lovett on the back of the head, and the next thing Lovett remembered was being in the trunk of the car without his shoes on. Lovett said he passed out again and woke up on the side of the road with his shoes on again. So he remembers being in the trunk with no shoes, and then he woke up on the side of the road with shoes. After taking a statement, police let him go. Okay, so was there any proof of him having, uh, like, wound to the back of his head? Did I miss that? I did not see that anywhere. I would think that mm-hmm. if that was the case, then that would have been And, and I think the police may have thought there's something fishy here because he does come back for a second and then a third interview. Yes, most definitely. This is, you know, now he didn't meet her at a bowling alley that he picked her up from work. So this is why she didn't come back. So I don't know if she really was doing meth, Hmm. but he was a junkie. He was a meth head. He did any kind of drug he could get his hands on. You know, there might be some truth to that story. I'm not sure. She still didn't deserve this kind of She did not deserve that, no. Now, over a month later, they call Levin in for a second interview. And they're like, tell us what happened from the get-go. Now, although police were apparently follow- they were po- apparently following up on their first interview about the Simon murder, Lovett eventually answered that the beginning goes back to uh, January 15th of, what year was it? January 15th was the day before Elizabeth Garcia disappeared from work. Oh, and the plot thickens. Yes. Lovett said that on January 15th, his former brother-in-law, DeMoss, had been terrified, afraid that he was going to be framed for a murder. DeMoss needed DNA to put there. I'm sorry, what? Yes, this is what Lovett's saying. My brother-in-law asked me for some DNA because he was afraid he was going to get framed for murder. Does and that this idiot said, okay. Yeah, here, he's like, here, take some pubic hairs. Uh, there's always some, there's always a few loose ones. That's so he said gross. that, um... He said that he gave DeMoss a condom with his sperm and several pubic hairs in a bag. And he really said there's always a few loose ones. That's gross. You're a fucking gross man. Well, and not only that, but would you be stupid enough if I said, Cindy, can I have some of your (laughs) DNA so I don't get framed for a murder? Sorry, if you ask me for my pubic hair, we're going to have issues. Okay. okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So love it. No, I would not give you my DNA. Thank you. Lovett told police he thought that DeMoss killed Garcia and then DeMoss shaved his head the next day because people were after him. So I don't know if any of that's the truth. This is what he's telling police. Why? This is his so-called story. After discussing the Garcia murder, police again questioned Lovett about the Simon murder. Lovett began the stories he had during his first interview with the police, but now he has some additional details. 
Now he says that the man who demanded Simon's, Simon's drugs had wavy, dirty blonde hair, and several people in the very beginning told me it was some guy named James. In this version of the story, however, the man did not knock Lovett out and put him into the trunk. This time, he said that the man made Lovett get into the trunk on his own. Lovett remembered spending hours in the trunk after the car came to a stop. At some point, after Simon was killed, the man opened the trunk and ordered Lovett to pull Simon from near the car to the spot she was later found. So rather than receiving all his scratches from the man slashing him, in this version of the story, Lovett told police that he inflicted the scratches on his own arms in an attempt to kill himself. Huh. So now he wants to kill himself because he has to drag Simon to wherever she was found. Okay. Does it make sense? No. Me neither. <laughs> Later during the same second interview, the police suggested to Lovett that DeMoss was the assailant who tried to rob Patty and then kill her. Kill her. Soon after, Lovett changed his story yet again. He maintained much of the initial portion of his story, except that now DeMoss was the assailant. assailant. He said that DeMoss hit Patty's head with something when the car made its first stop. So now he's saying that he, this is the second murder. This is the second murder and DeMoss was the one that, that killed Patty. And he's, I guess, conveniently throwing it on Garcia, too, because he asked, he's right. saying that DeMoss asked him for his DNA. Right. His now, sperm and his pubic hairs. So mm -hmm. if they find sperm and pubic hairs in the Garcia case, that's because DeMoss put them there. Gotcha. He's really throwing home homeboy under the Well, he's bus. trying to cover his tracks because they he was realizing that all of this evidence is, you know. Piling up. Piling up. In this version, Lovett said that he was never trapped in the trunk. Instead, he remained in the car with DeMoss and Patty. When they arrived at the Caliche pit, Lovett said he just walked away because he did not want to see what was going to happen there. Lovett walked back to the site late, late, late and saw Patty, but DeMoss was not there and Lovett did not know how DeMoss had left the scene. At this point in the interview, the police told Lovett that they thought his DNA would be identified at the scene of the Simon murder and that he should probably be able to explain that. In response, Lovett said he'd walked back to the site earlier as opposed to late, late, late. And DeMoss um, asked for some DNA, so he gave DeMoss some of his DNA by spitting into a cup. Again. Again, DNA, right? This time it's not pubic hairs and sperm, it's spit. Is there something wrong with this guy? Like, well, are his brain waves connecting? Like is I he said, low? he is a drug addict, and um, I didn't see anything about him being low, but, you know, it's a possibility. He's definitely not high. No. I mean, he might be high, but he ain't, <laughs> He's know. not super smart, is he? Yeah. DeMoss then walked over to Simon with a cup of spit, and DeMoss, um, he, he was sure that DeMoss put the spit somewhere around Simon. He's like, you're probably going to find the spit, my DNA, somewhere around Simon, because I gave him some of my spit. So when they get DNA, though, they can tell, obviously, kind of um, answer my own question, they can tell what kind of DNA, like, it, what it came from, like, whether it's semen or spit, obviously, if it's blood, but, like, if it's some, or if it's sweat, even. Right. So did they... I mean, I, mean, I think semen later. probably has a lot of proteins and stuff in it that you're, I mean, it's obviously different. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to talk to you about the difference between spit and, and semen, okay? But does anything in here tell us that, yes, they found the, the spit, the saliva or whatever? They did find semen. Okay, but they didn't find his spit. I don't know if they found spit or not, but that's not what's used in the trial. Oh, okay. All right. Lovett maintained that he did not have sex with Simon and that he did not see anyone else have sex with her. Returning to the subject of the Garcia murder, Lovett said that he was home the night Garcia was killed and that he would not have had the physical strength to commit the crime. 
Lovett had some sort of injury at the time that did require physical therapy. His wife at the time, Shelly Terrell, who, by the way, is Stephen DeMoss's sister. Shelly Terrell, she got remarried after she divorced Lovett, testified that Lovett was home with her, but she could not have said whether he left after she went to bed. Also, his physical therapist testified that there's no way that he could have lifted um, Garcia or done anything okay. like that. All right. Lovett said that DeMoss was angry because DeMoss's father was interested in Garcia. So there's that again. Okay. Story number three. At, at some Lord. point, Lovett takes off to Louisiana and he's, he's arrested in Louisiana and they had to go get him. I'm not sure when that was, but he tried to leave New Mexico. They probably advised him not to do that. Right. Right. Now, two days after the second interview, they interview him again. That's the third time. During that interview, Lovett's story changed again. He said that after DeMoss initially injured Patty Simon, she walked back to the car herself and got into the back seat. She was bleeding a lot, but she was still conscious and complaining about her head. At the Caliche pit, Lovett said that DeMoss and Simon walked away from the car together and he walked away from them, not wanting anything to do with it. He did not see DeMoss again until DeMoss came over and asked him for spit. Lovett admitted that he was wearing his shoes the whole time and that he had changed his story about where he walked at the scene. So, again, remember, there was only one set of footprints around the body. Right. I wonder what his purpose of saying that he didn't have his shoes on. Because he didn't make the footprints. Somebody else must have had his shoes. Oh, gotcha. Right. Most of the physical evidence that tied Lovett to the... Um, most of the physical evidence did tie Lovett to the Simon murder scene. Investigators found his shirt, which was bloody under a pile of rocks near her body... DNA on cigarette butts found all around the Simon scene matched his. Simon's blood was on Lovett's shoes and underwear. Ugh. The numerous shoe prints around her body were consistent with the shoes that he wore that day. There was a fiber found on her hand that was consistent with jeans, and Lovett was wearing jeans the day that she was killed. That, to me, would be a throwaway. You can't prove that. but Yeah. Um, Lovett's underwear did have DNA on it that could not exclude Simon, but could not conclusively be identified as her DNA. DNA found on his penis matched Simon with a high likelihood. The likelihood that someone else would match the DNA was 1 in 410 to 1 in 670. Okay. It's not, it's not huge as far as DNA goes, but it still is a high likelihood that it's his. What do they call that? Circumstantial? I mean, would that be... That's not even circumstantial. That's not that's circumstantial. That's evidence. pure evidence, but... You know, I also read somewhere that people think that DNA is the end all of evidence and it, it's not. But when you have someone's DNA on your penis, yeah, I think that's pretty clear that, that you, you touched that person um, with your dick. Dickhead. <laughs> so it wasn't until over a month after Simon was killed that one of the investigators investigating the Garcia murder thinks to himself, you know what? I need to check Lovett out. We have another young woman dead in a remote area of Hobbs. 16 months later, I need to talk to this guy. This detective made contact with the Lee County Sheriff's Department saying that he had heard of the death of Simon and he wanted to help out with the Simon murder investigation because we had two young mothers that had been murdered. So between the two women, there were seven children who did not have a mother. Oh, man. The mentioned detective testified during trial that he decided to interview Lovett over a month after the Simon murder. 
in order to help with the Simon murder investigation, not because of any relation to the Garcia murder. Police began to investigate Lovett for the Garcia murder only after he began talking about it during an interview concerning the Simon murder. Eventually, Lovett was arrested on June 25th, 2003, more than a month after Simon's body was found in that caliche pit. Lovett was arrested in Louisiana and extradited back to New Mexico. So the state charged Lovett with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of kidnapping in relation to the Garcia murder, and one count of criminal sexual penetration in relation to the Simon murder. So they um, now have to go to trial. The trial had to take place in the next county over because of extensive publicity. Actually, I don't even know if it was the next county over, but it took place in a different county. Right, so uh, they changed a venue. Yes, thank you. Uh, Lovett, also the state decided to try both cases together, but Lovett requested that they sever the two cases so that each would be tried separately. However, the judge denied his request. So he's going to have one trial where he's, um, he's being tried for the, the two first degree murders, the sexual penetration and kidnapping. Now I'm trying to think of high profile cases and I think that they all, if they're in the same location, like, I think... Well, I think OJ was tried for both, right? OJ same was trial. tried for both. But I think because they were kind of at the same time. But I think, I mean, I'm pretty sure that... I'm trying to think... No, Ted Bundy had... I think he just had one Florida case. I mean, I know, obviously, it was in Miami. Wasn't in Tallahassee. Wasn't in Lake City or hmm. wherever... Kimberly Leach's was, but I think that he only had one for all three, and then they were like, you know. Well, and this is definitely, (laughs) and, and, you know, he had the same M.O. in every case, Ted Bundy did. There were some major differences between the Elizabeth Garcia case and the Patty Simon case, which I'm going to go over, because not severing the trial Mm -hmm. is grounds for an appeal. Really? Because even like John Wayne Gacy... His were all at the same time, but is that because we're going to talk about it in just, we're going to talk about it in just a minute. So let's get, so during Simon's trial, so the Simon murder, so they presented the evidence at the same time and it was very confusing. You know, they had to make sure when they brought in the evidence for the Simon murder, they had to make sure that they didn't accidentally say the same names. In addition to testimony about where Simon was found and Lovett's predicament that morning, claiming to have been with Simon the night before, the state introduced testimony and photographic evidence documenting her injuries, the footprints, and other evidence. In addition to Lovett's video statements to the police, a nurse testified that she overheard Lovett say that they were trying to charge him with two capital murders and they could charge him for 10 for all he care. He only murdered one. So a nurse actually heard him admit that he did murder one, but not both. He did end up going to the hospital for some reason. And it might have been, I'm not sure why he ended up having to go to the hospital under police escort. So I don't know if when they arrested him, they got a little brutal. I'm not sure what, but that's what a nurse at the hospital said when he went in there. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising. Now at trial, he did not testify. He was not able to explain the nurse's testimony or the inconsistencies in his own recorded statements. His own attorneys would not let him testify. In addition, uh, a forensic examiner at the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia, Brendan Shea, testified that DNA in Lovett's underwear collected by the Lee County Sheriff's Department had Lovett's DNA as well as that of Simon's on it. 
The state introduced testimony and photographic evidence that Garcia was brutally murdered. She was fully clothed when she was stabbed and when she was found. They also found tire tracks and footprints at the scene. Blood and scrapes on the ground indicated that she had been dragged from the passenger side of the car. Several experts testified about the significance of the physical evidence found at the scene. FBI expert Brennan Shea testified that to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, certainty, Lovett's semen was found in Garcia's panties. By contrast, four other suspects, including Lovett's former brother-in-law, Damas, were excluded as semen contributors. So his DNA, his semen was found at both, in both scenes. That also the tire tracks that were found on the Garcia uh, crime scene were consistent with tires on the car, but they can't prove that they were actually the tires from his car as well as the shoe prints that were collected around her body that they did have. He did have shoes with the same um, markings on the bottom that he owned at the time, but they can't prove that they were actually his. So it's all circumstantial evidence yeah. that fits what he has. But, you know, for example, we could have the same I kind of tires so. on our car. Well, we could we, have the same kind of shoes. We too. could have the same kind of shoes. Okay. So they didn't, I guess, I don't. I mean, I guess they have to cut. What did they say? Split hairs? Right. You know, I mean, there right. has to be, if you're going to say this person killed this person, you gotta, you, I mean, if I was him and I was on trial for something like that, you know, I would want them to say the same thing. Right. So his ex-wife was called to the stand. Shelly Lovett was her name when she was married to him. Shelly Terrell during this. And she was questioned about the days surrounding Garcia's death specifically on statements that Shelly made concerning her ex-husband's whereabouts that night. Shelly told Reese that she could not remember that night. She said, to my knowledge, he was there with me. To my knowledge, he was home. She did, however, testify that Lovett had some issues with meth, which is really why she divorced him. They were married for less than a year. She did say that he, she would um, wake up and he wouldn't even be in the house. Now, that night, she thinks he was home. She, she can't really promise a bullet, it. didn't she? <laughs> yeah no shit during closing arguments the state began by explaining to the jury that the instructions for i guess weighing the evidence for the garcia and simon murders now right away there was some confusion the states uh to, on the state's part because they gave the information backwards they mixed the names up it's very confusing to me it definitely would be confusing to the jury he said i think i may have gotten it backwards here one of them is going to be with respect to patty simon and the other one will be with respect to elizabeth garcia okay i may have a different instruction up here but you're going to have an instruction with you that instead of P patty simon here it says elizabeth garcia okay what? Same else. Exactly. Right. Confusing. Right. Okay. Wow. Would that be grounds for an appeal? I would think so. Mm -hmm. And I did. I did look it up. Ted Bundy had two trials in Florida. Okay. Two so, trials. So one for the Tallahassee murders and then one for the Lake City Kimberly Leach murder. Okay. Which I think obviously we know what happened. And both the prosecution and defense rested and Judge Maddox instructed the jury on deliberations. At this time, he ruled that there was not enough evidence for the kidnapping charge in the Garcia case, so that was dropped. Okay. They could not prove that she was um, kidnapped or she left on her own. There's no evidence whatsoever of that. Maybe if that convenience store would have had video surveillance. Right. He did instruct the jury to rule on first-degree murder in both cases and criminal sexual penetration in Simon's case. The jury deliberated, and they found Lovett guilty of first-degree murder for Garcia 
and first degree murder and criminal criminal sexual penetration in the Simon case. So he is convicted of first degree murder twice and criminal sexual penetration, which is basically rape. Good. Before before jury deliberations began in the sentencing phase, Lovett is begging for his life because this is a death murder a death penalty case. Guess you sort of thought about that. Right? He told the jury, I've come to realize that if you decide to kill me, that is the exact same pain that my family and especially my daughters will have to go through. He was referring to the pain and suffering that he had caused the families of the victims. Patty Simon's mother felt absolutely no sympathy for him or his daughters. She stated that it was Lovett who chose to kill her daughter and Garcia, leaving seven children without mothers. Jeez. On April 8, 2007, Lovett approached Judge Maddox's bench requesting a new trial. Lovett complained that his public defenders were unprepared for trial. In addition, they would not honor his request to testify on his own behalf, but his request was denied. All right. So um, don't they always say, it seems like every case that we hear about or every case that we listen to, on even on different podcasts, they talk about how the um, when they come to an appeal, they always try to say ineffective counsel. Yes. And it's like... Because there are only a couple of, of ways that you can get an appeal, and that's one of them. You can prove that pretty easily. I mean, I guess, I but just, I mean, these, I doubt that all of these people are just doing a shitty-ass job defending the... I mean, they became, def, you know, public defenders or right. defense attorneys for a reason. And sometimes I think public defenders, you know, their goal is to maybe plead it down or not... They don't get a whole lot of money for it, so... No, and they get sometimes, a bad rap. And sometimes they don't do their best. I think the majority of them probably do. But yeah, I they think, took an oath like right, a doctor takes an oath. Right. They take an oath, too. And I hate when people try to say, oh, well, it's just a public defender. You're going to jail. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Right. But I think, too, that, like, they did approach the bench and ask for the two trials to be, to the two cases to be severed. And the judge denied that request. They also probably did not think that putting him on the stand on his own behalf was smart. Right. No matter what he thought, there's a reason why they didn't. So, you know, you can say ineffective counsel if you want. Um, we're going to come back to the appeal in just a minute. But he uh, did not, he did not get the death penalty. Instead, they gave him a life sentence for the Garcia case, a life sentence for the Simon murder, 18 years for rape. And he must serve at least 60 years of that before he is eligible for parole. Now he um, files an appeal and he's granted one by the New Mexico Supreme Court because they said the state erred when not severing the two cases. And like you were talking about with some of your uh, examples, the OJ case, the, the prosecution said, well, we can try these. These are a lot of like. And Supreme Court says... Um, well, the state argued that they had the right to conduct one trial for both murders, citing an earlier case, State versus Peters. But the New Mexico Supreme Court stated that the state misunderstood the Peters case. Peters is about cross-admissibility of evidence when it suggests that the perpetrator in one crime is the same as a perpetrator in another crime because the two crimes were committed with a common M.O. He's saying that in the Peters case, there was a common M.O. Like, gotcha. right? However, in this case, there was not one. No, they He's, were completely right. different. Okay, so in Peters, it said that in Peters, there were two joint crimes were practically the same. Both were armed robberies, rapes of elderly females committed with the victim's home using a knife in the same neighborhood. Each crime 
Uh, in each crime, the perpetrator entered the, entered the women's homes through a window, hit them in the face or head, used his knife to control them, tied their hands and feet, gagged them, covered their faces, raped them, and ejaculated. After each rape, he asked each woman where a purse was, and he took money from each purse. The perpetrator had a common MO because he committed the crimes using a signature that um, was recognized not only by police, but also by an emergency room nurse who attended both victims. So here, yes, if it's extremely similar, it's a signature, then you gotcha. can try them both. That makes sense. I, I, I agree. He said, they said that no such signature emerges when you compare the Simon and Garcia murders. The killer and the Simon and Garcia murders use different weapons. They left the victims in different locations. They left entirely different physical evidence at each scene and inflicted different wounds on the victims. The crimes were committed in two different places, 16 months apart. The criminal investigators never recognized any pattern in the two crimes until Lovett spoke up and mentioned Garcia in the context of Simon. Unfortunately for the state, the pattern Lovett suggested was that his brother-in-law routinely committed murders and had asked Lovett for DNA to cover his tracks, a pattern unsupported by the evidence. DeMoss was never charged. The state further claimed... I'm sorry, did you want to say something? No. Okay. I'm sorry. I was no, it's okay. In. The state further claimed that these were simple cases that could not... that could easily be tied, tried together. However, the higher court disagreed. Um, stating that the trial was for two death penalty eligible murders. It involved two unrelated victims, different defenses, dozens of witnesses, and a significant amount of expert testimony. The fact that the state was confused at times using the wrong victim's name and indicating the wrong jury instructions, confusing the locations where the victims were found, suggests that the jury was also confused at times. Okay, so that would be... Oh no, that's not that's ineffective counsel on the other on the prosecution's part. Right, right. So the prosecution did not give him a fair trial. The trial lasted a full two weeks, not including jury selection or sentencing. For all of these reasons, the New Mexico Supreme Court disagreed that this was a simple case. And the issues in the trial, if the issues in this trial were simple, it would be difficult to identify a complex case. All right. So, but are you ready to say, okay, well, we're gonna, if this was you. We're going to throw out your case. You're going to get a new case. You're going to get two new two new court dates. And it's the death penalty is still on the table. Are you ready to take that chance? As like, if, as a, like as a defendant. Yeah. Okay. So the higher court doesn't do that. What the higher court does is it analyzes the evidence. But, but further, the higher court stated that the state used evidence in both trials to bolster the Garcia case. Because there was not enough evidence to prove that he did the Garcia case. However, there was enough evidence to prove that he was responsible for the Simon murder. It said that the state relied upon the jury's knowledge of the Simon case in order to discredit him in the Garcia case. Later, after replaying one of Lovett's statements to the police, the state suggested that because Lovett was a liar in the Simon murder, he also lied in the Garcia case. For example, the state pointed out Levitt's explanation as to how his DNA was found in Garcia's panties was the same as his explanation as to why police might also identify his DNA at the Simon murder scene. So once again, we hear the same story. So basically, in a long story short, it's the state didn't have enough evidence to convict him for Garcia. So they're kind of like using the evidence from the Which Simon case. Do. Right. Right. Because you, again, if you, if you watch freaking law and order if you watch 
I like that TV show Bull, which is like about yeah, jury I like science. That too, yeah. And they always say, well, you can't bring that up. You know, they try right. to dis- they try to say you can't bring up past crimes if it doesn't. Right. You know, that sort of thing. Right. So, I mean, that's what comes to mind yes. here. So in August 2012, the New Mexico Supreme Court overturned the conviction in the Garcia case. And there, Roy, they claim that the prosecution used the Simon case to prove the Garcia case and vice versa. They determined that there was adequate evidence to convict Levitt for the first degree murder and criminal sexual penetration of Patty Simon. However, they did not believe there was enough standalone evidence to convict him for Garcia's murder. For those reasons, the New Mexico Supreme Court reversed Lovett's conviction for first-degree murder in relation to Garcia, but upheld his conviction for first-degree murder and criminal sexual penetration in relation to Simon. So he's not free on the Simon murder. Okay. But Does on he the get Garcia a new trial. Yes. So on May 15, 2013, a second trial date was set for Elizabeth Garcia's murder. Now I'm not sure that this ever went to trial because I found nothing. Um, I don't know if he took a plea on it. I'm not sure. What I do know is that people were very upset that the conviction was overturned. I imagine so. One person commented on Garcia's legacy page. I'm so sorry you were taken so early from this life by a junkie monster. I'm sure you're a beautiful angel looking down over your children and family. Another person said, I will always remember your kindness. You were a great big sister, and I'm glad to share my childhood with you and your family. Oh, wow. As of March 14th, 2019, Lovett is sitting in the Guadalupe County Correctional Facility. Um, he is known as the Preacher. Don't know why. It is a level three, level four security prison. It's pri- privately operated. Now, Garcia's family, as I told you earlier, they decide that they're going to sue Alsips. They filed a wrongful death suit against her employer, Alsips Enterprises. Randy McGinn of Albuquerque was the lead attorney in the case. And in her closing statement, um, she said that the Garcia children, Xavier 13, Jerome 11, and Sunay 10, only received $278.88 every two weeks from their dead mother's workers' comp. McGinn suggested that the jury award $60 million to the children. Not only would this prove their mother's life was valued, she said, but it might force convenience stores to develop better security. She said, years from now, you might need gas and pull into a store fully lit with cameras. As you walk in, you'll smile at the clerks on duty. They won't know what you did, but you will, and that will be enough. Just before, while the jury was deliberating on this case, the two sides came together and um, and made a settlement. Yeah, because they were like, oh shit, we're right? about to come out. And because, also, I bet there was a chance that the jury could award more than $60 million. Well, they actually ended up awarding $51 million, but um, the settlement was undisclosed. So I'm not sure how much the family actually got. However, they did not agree to the settlement until Allsup's agreed to change their security measures for graveyard shift workers. They added security cameras, alarm buttons, and now two people have to work that shift. Good. Okay. They should. That's ridiculous. My father-in-law used to work at a convenience store. He didn't work the graveyard shift, but it was a convenience store that o- that often got robbed at night. I mean, I say often. One time is too many, but um, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't work there. I wouldn't work a convenience store. I mean, I, I say that. I mean, I guess if I had to and there wasn't any other job in that town where I was living, then that was the only place hiring, and then you do what you got to do. But I'm afraid that I wouldn't work the graveyard stuff, and it's certainly not by myself. Yeah. I mean, I had thought about it before because they offer pretty good packages for management. But, you know, I don't know. I don't think I could do it. Um, I, I did want to spend just a minute talking about Patty Simon because she was 
described as a beautiful woman, the mother of four children. She was a very loving mother. She was married and uh, her life was shortened by the cruel act of another person who took her life. So through all of this, you know, there are just so many children affected. Lastly, I want to talk about Stephen DeMoss for a minute because, you know, his name kept coming up throughout this. Nobody really knows what happened at the Garcia murder case. We do know that Stephen DeMoss did have uh, a little bit of drug issues early on and that he did hang out with Paul Levitt sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how involved DeMoss was in any of this. And I don't know if Levitt pointed him out to the authorities because of a beef that they had or if DeMoss really was involved somehow in her death. But what I do know is that in 2013, when he was 33 years old, he was shot twice and killed in his own driveway in front of his nine-year-old son. Oh, man. The complaint said that DeMoss's nine-year-old son was outside the family home with his father and told police that an SUV stopped in front of the family's residence. The boy told police that the vehicle belonged to a woman that his father dated for a period of time. The boy who was in the garage when the SUV arrived told police that his father approached the driver of the vehicle and asked him to leave. The boy said the driver then pointed a gun at his father and shot two rounds. The boy said his father tried to run away when the shots were fired. Surveillance video footage retrieved from a residence nearby showed Stephen DeMoss walking toward the SUV that was stopped in the street and then within a few seconds attempting to run away from the vehicle collapsing in a front yard of a residence. The SUV then departed the scene going north on Blanco and it was the lady that he dated. It was her younger brother. Oh, so Um, they did find out. Yes, they did. And he had his own trial, which, you know, that's another podcast, but There's so many children um, affected. This boy watched his dad get shot in front of him. Um, So, so, yeah. Yep. And not including, you know, Paul Levitt's daughters when he went to prison. So, So, I mean, who knows how many kids? Right. Because I don't think we said how many he had, right? I think he had two daughters, but uh, don't quote me on that. Yeah. Give or take. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a tragic story from beginning to end. Right. Good grief. Well, thank you so much for your chatting with us today. Hey, you're welcome. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were just as intrigued by this week's murder as we were. We appreciate sharing our passion with you and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, you can subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating. While there, leave us a comment about absolutely anything. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success and helps push us up the charts. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at wasn'tmetruecrime.com. Yes, thank you. And we are so grateful to spend our time together sharing our murderous stories. Again, thank you so much for listening and supporting us and not thinking we're just a bunch of weirdos for our true crime obsession. We would like to thank our Patreon supporters. They are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash pod. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating. Thanks again, guys. And remember... It It wasn't wasn't me. me.